And welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, we have this month's IWF policy focus entitled Russia's Threat and America's Follies. We'll dissect the immediate crisis in Ukraine, the history of Russia and what got us today, the man behind it all, Vladimir Putin, and what it all means for the United States. And we have a wonderful guest, the author of the policy focus, joining us today, Claudia Rosette. Claudia Rosette is a foreign policy fellow with IWF and an award-winning journalist has reported over the past 30 years, 37 years from Asia, the former Soviet Union, Latin America, and the Middle East. She is widely credited with groundbreaking reporting on corruption at the UN, and she is the former Wall Street Journal Moscow Bureau Chief. Claudia, it is a pleasure to have you on She Thinks today. Beverly, it's a pleasure to be here. And what a, what a timely policy focus. I want to let all our listeners know we are recording this at noon on Thursday, uh, Eastern time. So what we know to this point is that Vladimir Putin's Russia has attacked Eastern Ukraine. What do you make of this all? Let's just start there. Well, it's all moving so fast by now that we've actually updated the title of the policy focus that's about to come out. It's now Russia's, not Russia's threat, but Russia's war and America's follies. And uh, Vladimir Putin has sent his massive invasion force into what looks like all of Ukraine. Uh, They've been moving up the coast from the south, from Crimea. They've been fighting in Odessa, attacking Odessa. They've been carrying out strikes in Western Ukraine, which is not far from Poland, NATO, and so on. And they started, they opened the whole thing with strikes on major cities, including the capital of Kiev. So this is a full, this is a war. This is a full bore invasion. It's not an incursion as President Biden invited him to do. Yeah, it is is definitely a full scale invasion, as you just said. And so many policy analysts predicted that Russia would attack. Did you think it would be to this extent? And what can we expect in the next few days and the next weeks to come? I did think it would be to this extent. What I didn't know, what was hard to predict was whether he would do it this time or Putin walks up to these things bullies, gets what he can, cashes in. He did that last spring with Ukraine when he began massing troops and celebrated what he said, sort of cast as a diplomatic victory because Putin did not go ahead. Uh, Remember there was a, then Biden rewarded Putin, dignified him with a summit in Geneva last June. Um, This time it did look like he'd put enough in there. So he was likely to, the question was when, and uh, it's now, He's he's committed to something where I don't know exactly sort of what he plans to do precisely in this campaign, but I've actually seen on a on a mind, on a lesser scale, uh, this is not so different from the way Russia went into the re- breakaway Republic of Chechnya in 1994, take out the air defenses, move in with massive force and. Uh, the difference being that this is an in from the Soviet Union in 1991. It is a sovereign state and it is now facing not uh, fading Boris Yeltsin with a decrepit post-Soviet military, but an ex- a messianic driven Vladimir Putin with a modernizing military, enormous strike capabilities, experience in this country. Remember they went into Crimea 
2014. They attempted to invade Georgia in 2008. Um, and he's had years to plan this, Bev. Uh, I think he's been many steps ahead of the people in Washington who take a day to produce a response. Let's talk about what that response has been. It seems that there has been more yeah. forceful rhetoric from, let's say, the UK. You have um, Boris Johnson there who's come out with some strong wording today. That's Thursday that we are recording this. What do you make of the rhetoric from President Biden, understanding that the American people don't have an appetite for us to go to war? But do the American people expect their, their leader, their president, to talk tough and to promote freedom and democracy against this authoritative individual who seems to want to take over so many free people? Well, war is a terrible thing. You know, it's a thing to be avoided at, if at all possible. Uh, President Biden has actually been moving us, it, putting us at greater risk of having to fight one, whether we want to or not, in a whole series of policies here. And the we've heard a lot of talk there's been a huge frenzy of diplomacy now for weeks, you know, in Brussels, in Munich, in Geneva, all over the place. Um, the worthies of Europe going to Moscow to petition Putin and the Kremlin. Uh, none of it evidently has deterred him, nor did it look like it was going to, because it's talk and sanctions where Putin has a lot of experience in getting around sanctions. He's adept at that. He's partnering with China, which is also, these are the two world masters of getting around sanctions. Between them, they have quite a number of deals they can make. And I suspect they did when Putin went to Beijing for the opening of the Olympics at the beginning of this month. This whole thing has been bracketed by Putin, the Olympics, and Xi Jinping, who right now, who as we speak, has been flying warplanes to threaten Taiwan. I, you know, we may have the making of quite a dust up here. I don't, again, I don't know the sequencing or the timing, but this is a time of real peril. And uh, what we're seeing again from Washington is, okay, more sanctions. That's bringing sort of somewhat amorphous, evadable measures to a gunfight. And at this point, that's not going to stop this invasion. Uh, the, the, there are things that President Biden could do that would genuinely help. Um, he could open up the U.S. energy in, industry again. Remember, he came into office and one of the first things he did was he killed the Keystone Pipeline. And he's made it very hard. He's basically reversed the energy independence we had achieved, then gone running around. Then he waved ahead the finishing of and of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to Germany. Remember, that's a pipeline that adds to what they're already buying from Russia. They already have a Russian gas pipeline that's working as we speak, has been there for years. So this was a, a sort of an additional pipeline to bring more gas. Uh, President Biden basically said fine to that. That was a green light to Putin. And then the mother of all green lights was Afghanistan in August when you had the spectacle of the mighty American superpower with our fine military uh, completely focused on an emergency evacuation via the Kabul commercial airport, leaving behind tens of billions worth of American military equipment and some of our own people, as well as Afghans who worked for us. All of this has fed into it. 
and now we're hearing a lot of things that sound good, but they're not stopping anything. Uh, and I, I don't see that even really, really strict sanctions, that's going to, I'm, Putin has had a long time to prepare for this. And I want to delve into that just a little bit. Something that your policy focus does go into is the history of Russia from the USSR to where we find ourselves today. And with that, the history of Putin. So when we look at the history of the country, the man behind it, what do you think is important to know about the history and the man to give us a perspective of what you think he's actually hoping to achieve? What is it that is his end goal? Well, Russia is vast even as it is today, even post-Soviet. This is, it's, you know, it reaches from the eastern, the borders of Eastern Europe all the way to the Asia Pacific. And it's got across 11 time zones, including the Kamchatka Peninsula in the, in the Pacific Ocean, Northern Pacific. Uh, and when the Soviet Union fell apart, remember the, the Soviet Union, Russia was an empire way back before it became communist. In 1917 came the Bolshevik Revolution. Lenin rises to power. The Soviet Union is now there to bedevil the in most of the 20th century. And the Soviet Union was a union, basically included what, five Soviet socialist republics, sorry, sorry, not five, 15 Soviet socialist republics, where Russia was the core. It was the control tower, the Kremlin. We've been talking about the Kremlin for generations because that's the seat of power, the Politburo for the Soviet Union, Putin in Russia today. But a lot of territory was lost. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, all the five stands, as they're called in Central Asia, became independent countries. Belarus and Ukraine declared independence. All these countries declared independence. In fact, the way that the Soviet Union finally collapsed was Russia became independent. There was nothing left for Mikhail Gorbachev, the final party boss of the Soviet Union to govern. That's why he resigned on Christmas, stepped down on Christmas day. But Vladimir Putin wants to reassemble that. I suspect he'd like even more if he can get it. But there's a difference. The Soviet Union, which was communist, was incredibly inefficient. Communism is a system that beggars the places that really try it. One reason we shouldn't have it here in America, it's really not a good system. And Putin knows this. He was born in 1952 in uh, Leningrad, what's now St. Petersburg, under the sort of, he knows what it was to live under Stalin. He saw the communists, he worked to rose as a KGB foreign intelligence officer, then went into politics as the Soviet Union collapsed. And he doesn't like communism. In fact, the speech he gave in the Kremlin on this past Monday night, he was really scorning the communist rule of, of, that came out of Russia in the last century. Uh, what he aspires to is a more efficient economy, much more sort of closer to what they have now, where they aren't bogged down by trying to collectivize the farms and have that kind of thing, uh, but a Russian imperium and he styled it sort of like the old czars. So what he wants is, I think part, partly he, I suspect, and here I'm making a guess, but if you read his statements, listen to him speak, watch him over the years, he wants revenge. Mm -hmm. uh, he has called it the greatest political catastrophe of the 20th century that the Soviet Union collapsed. And 
I think he's intent. It's his life's mission. Well, let, let me that. ask you this. Where are the Russian people in all of this? I know that there have been some reports that when you think about the Russian military, for them to go in, in Ukraine and fight Ukrainians, you're talking about families fighting each other. So many people, obviously, yeah. who are Russian there. Where are the Russian people when it comes to support of Vladimir Putin and the potential that what his end game is, is to reunite all the countries that were part of the former USSR? Well, this, what you're saying is true. Uh, there, there are two problems here. One is that the Russian people have less and less say in what Vladimir Putin does. And you can speculate that if he goes, if he, if he becomes bogged down in Ukraine, a lot of Russians start to die and so on. And it becomes basically people are looking at the example of, of the Soviet Union going into Afghanistan where it turned into a hideous decade-long war. A lot of Russians right. died, even more Afghans died. And finally, Russia, the Soviet Union withdrew. And that, along with things like the Chernobyl accident in Ukraine in 1986, were part of what helped to bring down a rotting Soviet Union, combined with what President Reagan was doing here. Uh, but that is sort of, are we at that point? Is that likely to happen anytime soon? Uh, Putin has a lot of power. He has a very powerful secret service. This is a KGB professional. And he destroys his opponents. When people rise up to sort of try and deflect him, steer him, oppose him, compete with him, uh, a lot of them have died in horrible ways. You know, shot, poisoned with polonium-210 in London, uh, hit with Novichok nerve agent, like opposition leader Naval of Navalny, who is now sitting in right. prison having recovered from nerve agent. <laughs> um, so it's hard for them to do very much. They might. Uh, the other problem is that that could take a while. And Putin right now is on a roll. I'm extremely worried right now that Xi Jinping is looking at Taiwan and that might have a right. much shorter fuse than we think, that China might make a move because both of these countries have dictators who have regard the United States, our democratic system, our longtime role as leader of the free world as their main enemy. They want us out of the picture. Then they might turn on each other. But for the moment, that's the one too. And there's a tremendous window of opportunity for them here. We have a weak American president who has said, and Bev, this part just floored me, when President Biden began saying he will not send troops into Ukraine. He, he said it so many times, I've lost count. Jen Psaki, the press secretary, has said it. Everybody's saying it in the administration. We will not send American troops into Ukraine. Okay, if that's the policy, there, there are reasons you, there's a good argument for that, but don't say it. It's, right. it's a gift of information to Putin where he can recalibrate his, his, his plans. He knows basically when the message is, America will not send troops to fight Russians. Well, Putin is willing to take the gamble that he can send in Russians with guns and we will leave. We'll sit in Poland. President Biden has said he will fight if Putin attacks the 30 member NATO alliance. Right. Uh, Putin can take a lot of territory before he works around to NATO. And by the time he gets there, if that's how this plays out, NATO will be in a much worse position. So, so here, here yeah, yeah, let me ask you the question I have for you is I think that there's been an interesting discussion within the United States 
uh, as how to view this. Even if people do agree that boots on the ground isn't the answer, there seems to be even among those who call themselves conservatives, a debate about how fearful we should be of Putin. What do you say to those who think uh, not a big deal if he takes over Ukraine? You obviously view it as a big deal. I happen to agree with you. But what do you say to that faction of even people who are conservative who seem to be turning a blind eye to this and not looking at it as what I think you and I would agree is a concerning situation, to put it lightly? I say, look at the 1930s, because we have a system there, there is no earthly authority that imposes overall justice and order on the world, okay? It's not like you can go down the street to a court and somebody will enforce it. I'm not even sure that's true in this country at the moment, but, but broadly, there's a sort of understanding, a set of arrangements that countries generally observe. And the United States has more or less been the enforcer, the Pax Americana, in which under, with US leadership, Yes, there have been wars, but there has been no great conflagration since the since we won World War II. And that's now in jeopardy because it's not this is not only about Ukraine. Putin is has already set the precedent with Crimea on President Obama's watch that he could grab territory, Crimea, from another country, Ukraine. That's something that's a very bad precedent. <laughs> and he's now wholesale invading an independent other sovereign state. Uh, when that becomes the law of the jungle, basically, right. a lot is up for grabs. And there are some increasingly powerful predatory countries. Uh, China is top of the list. That's the biggest danger. Russia, obviously. Iran in the Middle East, which would like hegemony there and is basically closing on the nuclear bomb if they don't already have it. Uh, and then there's so sort of the the, the deadly four, there's North Korea, which is not great, but you know, sort of intent on South Korea, that's what they want, but has nuclear weapons and, sell, and is, I think would be quite willing to sell them in this climate. It's, this is a very dangerous time. And it's all about, basically, Bev, how do you police a place? You don't want to enforce things on every action. You set rules at the margin. Wyatt Earp has the shoot at in the okay corral and that sort of sorts things out in Dodge. Well, what we're saying is we're not gonna go down to the okay corral, we're gonna sit and watch and say, this is a bad thing. And we're gonna freeze the bank accounts of the bad guys and hope that that solves it. The trouble is this is emboldening as was Afghanistan, as is Biden's energy policy, which is ruinous to the United States and a great help to Vladimir Putin, who, his country has some of the world's largest oil and gas reserves. Um, and that is exactly what happened in the 1930s. The free world sat and watched as, well, both Japan into China in the 30s and Hitler, most to the point, right. began expanding his empire. And it wasn't until he finally sent tanks into Poland that the free world moved at that point a lot of bad things were in were in the making. It took years to win that war. Uh, that's not a good position to get into. Oh, and, and that's why I think this policy focus is so important this month, because it goes through the history. It, it shows you the lens through which all of this is playing out. Claudia, what is the name of the policy focus again since it's been updated? <laughs> yeah, we had to update it from Russia's threat and America's follies. It's now Russia's war, which is Russia's what we're war. seeing. And well, America's follies. Look, 
There's one is the one great exception to the American follies, and that was President Reagan, who sized up the Soviet Union and called it an evil empire, which it was, and began an arms race. They were not the communism was not efficient enough to win and called for things like went tear Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall and that together with the internal problems you were asking earlier, are Russians happy with this? Probably if some of them aren't, but they have to have a way to connect and make turn that into effect. Uh, that finally brought down the Soviet Union. Well, we should look to that. Yeah, that's the kind of playbook you want here. And I think something is really as important for President Biden to try to recover that he has squandered is the credible threat of use of force. If he doesn't want to use force, he has to at least be able to persuade people, dictators like Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, that he's willing to. Right. And right now, that's not the message that's coming through. He's truly got to change that. We, we could turn this around, but I'm not yet seeing anything from the Biden administration that will. Well, I hope that we do learn from history, and I agree with you. We need to stop telegraphing all of our moves that we are going to make. We need that threat of the unknown, and that's what strong leaders in other countries um, usually respond to, a strength from other leaders. So we so appreciate you joining us today, Claudia. Claudia Rosette, the author of this month's Policy Focus, which you can find on IWF.org. Claudia, thank you so much. Thank you, Bev. Great talking with you. And thank you all for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting IWF.org backslash donate. That's IWF.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review. It does help. And we love it if you share this episode so that your friends know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for watching.